ready for some serious armchair traveling. This is Chapter 209 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week, award-winning novelist Erica Forensic tells us how Two Turtles inspired her Greenland-set literary thriller, Girl in Ice. We dip our toes into the icy waters of Antarctica with the historical fiction debut from Allie Wilkes. Then we travel to Italy and get a lesson in patron saints when we chat with New Jersey native Christine Simon about her delightful debut. If you're anything like me, you have a bucket travel list that's the size of a small book. And after reading the new literary thriller from author Erica Forensic, I guarantee you your list will grow one location longer. Set in the icy and unforgiving landscape of Greenland, Girl in Ice is the story of a young girl found encased in ice by a group of scientists. When they successfully thaw her out alive, she's speaking a language no one can understand. Intrigued? Erica told me how a winter walk inspired her story. We have a story here about a girl found in the ice. And just to start things off, I hear that her story was actually inspired by two frozen turtles you stumbled across in an icy (laughs) pond. Yeah, so I live in the Northeast and um, in in the winter of 2017, I was walking behind my house. I'm lucky enough to have woods behind there. And uh, you know what? And uh, we have a pond back there and it was totally frozen. And I saw along the edge of just two juvenile painted turtles and they were frozen mid-stroke, you know, just like that. And... And they didn't look alive, but they didn't look quite dead either, you know? So I ran home, Googled it, and learned that um, there are all kinds of creatures that can actually freeze and thaw out alive. Uh, certain wood, wood frogs, certain alligators, um, but they possess a certain cryoprotein that we do not possess, which protects the cells when they freeze. When you think about it, you know, ice, when, when water goes to ice, it becomes jagged and would actually break through a cell. So. Um, but regardless, you know, I ran, I I ran home and I just had this image of a girl in a glacier and I just saw her foot from the side and she was running from something. And so from there, I had to think, you know, what is she running from and who is she and why is she there? And, and that was, um, really the beginning of the story for me. I love authors in your imaginations, how you can stumble across something in the everyday and be like, (laughs) oh my God, this is a book waiting to happen. (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot more steps after that. But anyway, <laughs> I, I was going to ask about your research process, because I know you like to travel for your books. So for this one, you you spent a lot of time in Greenland, right? I did. I went to Greenland. So, you know, just to clarify, I do come up with the idea. I actually spend several months writing a first draft and then I write and then I go because I didn't go to Greenland and come up with the idea. That's really expensive and time consuming. But yes, I did go to Greenland for a month. It was, it was uh, you know, life-changing. You can read about something, uh, look at the pictures. They're very two-dimensional. But once you go there, uh, you really become, you really know a place. And and settings are so important in my stories. So uh, it, it's almost my responsibility to get the real deal, to, to you know, to get the juice bring it to the reader. You know, I'm asking for your money, but I'm asking for your time. That's, that's even more valuable in my opinion. Your main character Val is a linguist. And as much as Greenland is part of the setting, the the language too is very integral to, to the story. And I just, 
I was fascinated by the the complexities of the of the Inuit and 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 Greenlandic languages. I mean, you go into like how many words they have for snow and grief, which is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that uh, language reveals culture much more than maybe we're even conscious of. Uh, there's a word in Japanese, shibui, and I'm not, I apologize if I'm saying it wrong, but it refers to the beauty of aging. And, you know, we don't have that in our culture. We we worship youth and sexiness and, and so on. So that reveals um, something about the Japanese culture. Um, there's a word, bardo, which is refers to the place between life and death. It's a Buddhist concept. We don't have that here. But there's a word in Greenlandic um, that refers to climate change and it's translated as a friend acting strangely so what does that mean that means that we in this culture we have a somewhat combative relationship to our weather you know i live in the northeast why is it a, a big deal that a storm comes why is it a big deal that we have a snowstorm but uh it seems to still be a big deal whereas this is a culture that is still subsistence a hunting culture that has a deep deep relationship with nature. It is directly their source of food. Uh, there's no steps between, you know, catching something and, and eating it. There's no packaging and hiding it in a grocery store. Um, so I guess that is revealing of the culture. And they also have a word for, translates to the great necessity. The great necessity meaning the things they have to do to stay alive. You know, not that we don't have that in our culture, but it's a, it's a it's a much harsher way of surviving uh, in that place, which is still so hooked to prehistory. Oh my goodness! Even sure. though the book is titled "Girl in Ice" and we do have mm -hmm. a girl frozen in literal ice, it seems to me that Val is frozen in her own way, kind of emotionally. She's stuck. She she Absolutely. she she she's got a not necessarily a heart of ice, but she's pretty close. She's pretty close. So the story, you know, just quickly, a um, little roundup quickly here. It's about Val Chesterfield. She's an American linguist. She is tasked to go to an extremely remote climate research center off the coast of Greenland where a girl has been found in, the, in a glacier. She's thought out alive speaking a language no one understands. Eight months before the story begins, Val's twin brother, Andy, who was a climate research center in this remote place, walks out Arctic night, 50 degrees below zero and freezes to death. Val doesn't really know if it was, if he took his life or really what happened up there. But when the story begins, Val gets an email from Wyatt. Wyatt was the, one of the only other people up there when Andy walked out. And in the, in the email that, I mean, uh, Wyatt is saying, you've got to come up here. We found this girl. She's only you can figure out what she's saying because Val's a you know a specialist in um, in Nordic languages. So, but in the email is a clip of the girl, and Val plays it, and she doesn't understand a word of what the girl is saying. But she hears pain and she hears trauma, and Val, for the first time, I mean, Val has her own problems, like you said, she has a severe anxiety disorder. She only feels safe in her home and her work and so and her brother was the charismatic one that her father loved and she's the dutiful daughter but so for the first time when she hears this girl 
she has to make the decision. Am I going to jump? Am I going to leave my comfort zone to try to actually use one of my skills, which is, you know, being a linguist and actually help another human being. So that was a huge jump for her. And then to actually be in this place, um, isolated, completely isolated, uh, and try to help this girl is, is really the journey of the book. I love that the, uh, the, the description for going out into the world into a place that's pretty remote and isolated or even just the world in general it's it's labeled the enormity in in your book and you know i just i know you like to travel as well are you ever worried about like getting to that place where you're just like the only living thing in the middle of nowhere does that scare you yes i mean it's so great you put you pointed out you're you're the first person that remarked on that um you know i use the term so when val goes out into this uh, vast 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 place that is just ice and water it's beyond human scale it's a combination of her anxiety of being someplace that like that and also her own you know issues and she calls it the enormity and the enormity also refers to her inability to deal with her brother's death inability to face that um but it's also the physical enormity but your question uh just like all my research trips, I mean, I went to the Peruvian Amazon to to research into the jungle. That was a trip. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other interview I could get from that. That's a whole other interview <laughs> involving poisonous, all sorts of things, including plants. Um, again, you see it on the screen, but actually going there. And I mean, we took a trip, uh, part of the trip, we were in kayaks and and actually Greenlanders invented kayaks, which is very cool. The original kayaks were made out of whale ribs and um, seal skin. In any case, we were in our nice modern kayaks. We were in this place called the Iceberg Graveyard. And the Iceberg Graveyard is so named because these massive, massive icebergs got kind of washed in by the currents. These are as big as buildings, as big as parking garage. <laughs> blocks long and they're carved in all these bizarre shapes and they're just floating and you know it is true that the part of the iceberg that is underwater is often two three times as large which is another phenomenal thing to witness the colors the greens the blues the purples if you're at sunset I mean but anyway we were in this place and all the time we're hearing explosions muffled or like gunshots and we know that these are icebergs splitting or having or they have a weird tendency to flip over now that's bizarre that just imagine that the iceberg is as big as a building just flipping over but in any case so we're sitting in our kayaks and i and i said to the guide what if what if one of these breaks you know what what, what would happen and he said well a massive wave would be created and so you need to be always listening, listening to, because if you hear it, you only have seconds. Uh, you've got to turn your kayak toward the sound so that the wave will wash over you and not you know, flip your kayak into 30 degree, half mile deep water. <laughs> so he didn't say you're gonna live. He just said, point your kayak toward the sound. You know, uh, So that's, that was a stunning moment. I could listen to you tell these stories all day. Yeah, yeah, there's just, 
just a lot. And just the fact that, you know, there are, there were polar bears and the, our guides had guns. I mean, they didn't shoot any, but we, and we had, we were staying in these sort of, there were like, you know, canvas slash huts with something. And we had a little, um, um, an electric fence was around it, which looked like the wimpiest thing in the world. If I were a polar bear, I'd be like, <laughs> this is BS. I'm going to like slash my way through here. But yeah, so it was, it was, tense. It was great. I loved it. I don't know. I mean, you're, you've totally sold it. me on going to Greenland. I don't know how many other people you've sold on yeah. going with those stories. <laughs> but before yeah. I let you go, I guess my, you know, just to wrap things up, what, what do you hope readers you know, come away after they've done reading the book? First of all, I want to send them on a wild ride. I want to send, because the story comes first, you know, the human story comes first. Uh, and I think it's a terrific story in itself. It's in a setting, like you said, most of us may not have a chance to ever see. Um, I want them to, people to come away with also just a sense of wonder, because I think the human brain craves that. We, we crave mystery at the same time we're trying to solve a mystery, but we, I love that we don't know everything about the world yet. And I just would love people to just come away with a sense of awe, even though that's an overused word um, about, about the world and, and everything in it. Um, and just have had a great time, you know? Uh, Greenland is one of those places that we haven't ruined yet and I feel guilty talking about it because uh, I'm not trying to create a rush of people there um I'm just it, it, it is a wondrous place that has that retains its sense of mystery under unlike so many other places that have been explored to death you know this is a thoroughly enjoyable book I think anyone who Thank has you. even a tiny bit of a an adventure streak in them will will enjoy it but we've been talking with Erica Forensic the new book is Girl in Ice. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing these incredible stories with us. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. In all the white spaces, something deadly and mysterious stalks the members of an isolated Antarctic expedition. Honestly, the monster created by author Allie Wilkes is one of the scariest I've ever encountered in fiction. Her Edwardian horror novel also explores what it means to be a survivor, gender identity, and pure fear. But I started our interview with kind of an obvious question. Have you always been fascinated by Antarctica? I really have, um, particularly the historical aspect of exploration. I've always been very, very fascinated by what's sometimes called the heroic age of Antarctica, which was obviously the age of Scott, Shackleton, Mawson, Amundsen, the sort of era in which small teams of men went out really quite unprepared and not knowing what they were going to find. And it's this absolutely amazing mixture of courage and sheer hubris that I find so fascinating. You couldn't ask for better timing with, with, with Shackleton's boat just now being rediscovered and us seeing these like pristine pictures of, of his, his wooden ship at the bottom of the ocean. It's absolutely fascinating. It's brilliant timing. I have 
I have to say, I didn't think they would ever find the endurance because of conditions in the Weddell Sea and the complexities to do with the drift of the endurance because she was locked in the pack ice and drifted on quite a meandering course before finally being um, locked in and then crushed and broken up and sinking beneath the surface. So I'm absolutely flabbergasted they managed to find her. And obviously the photos of the wreck have thrilled me beyond compare because you can see so much about her still intact the the wheel and her name it, it's a very haunting image it's a very ghostly image I think as well I actually I read the news article about the discovery after I finished your book and to say that it brought your book alive for me. Like, you, you know, I mean, reading is wonderful because of the way you, you construct these stories in your head. But then actually seeing photos that corresponded with something I just read was mind blowing. So for me, the timing couldn't have been better either. Yes, I think so. And also, hopefully, it will encourage people to look at some of the earlier photography from that expedition because. Um, in keeping with sort of quite a media conscious age, Shackleton sailed with Frank Hurley, who was an Australian photographer on board. And despite the loss of the ship and the absolutely fantastic journey that followed, they actually managed to bring back a large number of Hurley's photographs of the expedition. So you can sort of see it happening in real time. You can see them setting out on the ship. You can see shipboard life. You can see the ship being slowly crushed day by day in photographs. And then you can see snapshots from the long journey towards rescue at the end. And I just hope that finding the ship and seeing how beautiful and how intact she is will encourage people to look out some of that earlier iconography because it's absolutely spectacular and was such a big influence on me. I was going to ask, I, I must assume that the, those photos must have been a, a part of what I can only imagine is a huge amount of research that you had to do about these expeditions and about the time period itself. Yes, that's right. The photographs were a massive um, influence on me and an amazing resource. Um, I also looked at photographs of the Antarctic huts because as a feature of the climate and the desertion of the place, the huts that subsequent expeditions built in Antarctica, there are several, I think there are about four remaining intact. They're still there, and I was lucky enough to find a treasure trove of photographs where still life photographers have gone into the huts and taken these immensely haunting photographs of the table still intact, chess set still there, socks still hanging from the bunks as if to dry. Everything is still there. It looks as though the men have literally just stepped out the back door and will be back very shortly. So that was another terrific resource I had in terms of visual aids. The story that you tell in this book, and I'm kind of getting my, ahead of myself here because I want to talk about the monster last, but the we're going to talk about the monster first. Um, I have to tell you, I think it's one of the scariest ones I've ever read, just because I can't imagine anything more horrifying than people you know and love luring you to your death. Thank you. That was exactly what I was going for. It's the fear 
from my perspective, it's the fear of the uncanny. It's something that looks homely, that looks familiar, that looks safe, but is actually attempting to do you harm. And that's sort of the, the definition of the unheimlich, the unhomely or the uncanny. And I just think that's such a powerful image. And to backtrack a little bit, I want to talk um, about uh, the character of Jonathan. And, and I want to know, when did you know his character was going to be the person your story really pivoted around? Jonathan was one of my very first ideas about the project. The way I typically think of stories and novels in particular is I think of a setting that really, really fascinates me and a time period. And then I take a step back and think, who is the perfect viewpoint character? Who is the person who I would like to use as my window on this this very different world? And so Jonathan as viewpoint character grew up uh, alongside the story because I knew I was going to be telling a, a very sort of masculine story about the very male-centric worlds of the front in World War One and Antarctic exploration around that time. And I knew that I wanted to give the audience and myself a perspective on that that came from someone who was within that world, but also not quite part of it. So that's when I hit on the idea of Jonathan, and that's how he came to be a, a trans man going to Antarctica at that time period. I love how 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 nuanced you are in letting readers know in the beginning. You 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 don't come straight out and say it and we we can figure it out from the story, but it does, or or maybe I'm just slow on the uptake. It it took me a little while to actually confirm that Jonathan had been raised as a girl. And you know, as a as a woman myself, I think about all the struggles a woman might have in a really harsh environment, regardless or not, if you're you're living as a man. And I do appreciate that. That's not what the story is really about. It's about him really just wanting to fit in and be like his two brothers who he lost in the war. Yes, exactly. I've always thought of it very much not as a story about Jonathan finding out that he's a man or coming to realize that he's a man, but it's more a story of him learning, as you say, where he fits in the world and what kind of man he's going to be, because he's presented throughout the book and also throughout his life with all these different ideas of what it means to be a man and what makes you a man. And they're often in stark competition with each other. And so I didn't really want to focus so much on, for example, the difficulties he faces in passing as a cis man, I wanted to make it more about the interior journey that he was on. And the journey that he and, and the men in this expedition group uh, uh, go through, it's no wonder that that some people may have been driven to madness. Yes, it's. I've always been very fascinated by the idea of what's at the core self when you strip away all the comforts of civilization and maybe all the veneers around your own personality that you, that you acquire when you're in um, a more populated and more stable environment. Um, in terms of madness, we know, of course, that overwintering in Antarctica, even today, 
takes a very, very significant toll on the health and in particular the mental health of the people who man the Antarctic stations. Um, it's called overwinter syndrome and it includes all sorts of things, for example, loss of time, loss of time perspective. Um, perception and something I find particularly creepy called the Antarctic stare which is something like a 12-foot stare in a 10-foot room. You have been getting incredible praise for for this debut of yours. What has that been like? It's been absolutely incredible. I am so touched and thrilled and honoured that so many people have taken this book to their hearts Writing is, as you probably know, a very lonely endeavour in that you spend a lot of time constructing this world and these characters and these messages you want to put out there into the world. And you don't know whether any of it is ever going to land with anyone. Um, And so to have so many people say either that it's spooky, which is brilliant, or that it's very true to its time period, which is immensely flattering, or more personally, that they can really see themselves in Jonathan or that they enjoy Jonathan as a character or see him as a nuanced representation of a trans character in historical fiction. I mean, that's just incredible to me. I'm absolutely in awe of the fact that people are enjoying it. And I do hope we could expect more books from you. I think you certainly can. Um, I'm currently working on my second novel at the moment. I'm hoping that that's going to be um, coming to you in maybe a year, two years, who knows. Um, but I'm really excited about that one. It is also historical horror set around polar exploration. So I've definitely found the area that I I want to explore for a little bit longer. I don't know whether I'll always be writing these icy, spooky historical books, but certainly I think there's more to dig up here. I have to ask that. Have you been to Antarctica yourself? I have not. Oh, we got to get you there, Ali. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting idea to go to Antarctica because of course the Antarctica almost that you would be experiencing now is so different so miles different from Antarctica as it was experienced by the people in my books or the people that I most admire and read about because now of course you could if you wanted to get a helicopter to the Antarctic Peninsula and skip the entire seafaring voyage or you could take it all in from the deck of a cruise ship or or things like that it's it's a very different way to experience the place and with that in mind I don't quite know whether I'd enjoy it or whether I just find it extremely incongruous. Someone has to uh, launch an authentic uh, Antarctic exploration tour like on one of those old wooden boats and then I think you'd be totally on board <laughs> I think someone has actually done that I think there is an old wooden boat that goes through the Drake Passage which is the patch of land um, the patch of sea rather where all the ocean's currents meet in this sort of gyre that goes around the bottom of the world it's the most unsettled shipping passage in the world and knowing what I know about myself and how good I am on ships, I think I would just be very cold, very wet, very seasick and very miserable. 
Well, then we'll just have to let you write about it then <laughs> and thoroughly enjoy reading it in its aftermath. We've been talking to Allie Wilkes, the new book. The debut is All the White Spaces. Thank you for your time today, Allie. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Do a quick Google search for Italian towns that will pay you to move there, and you'll be greeted with more options than you probably thought possible. It's a sad reality, but a lot of those small villages just don't have enough people to keep the places running. Author Christine Simon puts her own spin on the tale in her debut novel, The Patron Saint of Second Chances. And let's just say the scheme the mayor of her fictional town of Prometo comes up with goes a little bit further than inviting people to move there. I should also mention, this is the first book in our annual Summer Read series. I got this idea from articles that I kept seeing about um, little tiny towns in Italy, like the rural sections of Italy, um, that were losing their populations because, you know, the young people are leaving for the cities. And so these towns that have been there forever, they're drying up. And so um, mayors in some of these towns have gotten bright ideas about drumming up publicity. Um, Some of them have offered homes for a dollar. Um, there was another town where they uh, made it illegal to die. <laughs> Very cute. Um, but I kept seeing them. And then I got the idea that this would actually make a really good story. And so many of the components of the story were kind of already set because then I had the setting, which would be a tiny Italian town. And I had the main character, which would be the mayor who's struggling to save it. And then instead of having, you know, the dollar home, um, houses, which I think would be more a story about someone coming to the town and establishing a new life there. I had him come up with the idea that he's going to start a rumor that a famous movie star is filming his next project in the town. And he's hoping that that will drum up publicity and maybe people want to move in and maybe it'll start some tourism so that people can pay their taxes. Um, But instead, everybody in the town gets really excited about the movie. And so to keep up the ruse that he's he has to make the movie for real. I don't know if I said that the pipes, I said this all out of order. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. In the first chapter, he discovers that the, the pipe, the town's pipes are failing and it's going to cost 70,000 euros to fix them. And if he can't pay within 60 days, the water commission is going to shut off the water and everybody's going to have to leave. So I gave it a ticking clock too. It's not just slowly people are leaving. It's that if he doesn't hurry up and earn some money, the town's done. I loved all the characters in this book. And I thought he, your mayor, your Signor Sperazzo was a, a especially fun, only because here's this guy who the town means everything to him. The people mean everything to him. And you kind of right. can't help but forgive him for like telling one little white lie that leads to another little white lie. And soon before he knows it's, it's, right. it's completely out of his control. Yes. Well, he is my favorite character. And I, I discovered when I started that even if the outline looked perfect, once I actually got down on the ground and was writing it, that I, you know, well, he's lying. Like, this is a problem. Like, you know, for an audience to go along with him and go along for the ride, like we really had to like him and we had to understand why he's doing it and that he's not doing it selfishly. He's doing it because he truly cares about this town and he truly cares about the people in the town. And then his whole character kind of came from his name. Um, I named him Giovanino Speranza. His last name means hope. His first name, Giovanino, is a diminutive form of Giovanni. So it's like saying, oh, little Giovanni. Um, And I got his name from um, 
Giovannino Goreschi, who's an Italian author who wrote the Don Camillo books. And, you know, that's his given name. Like it's on his birth certificate. He's Giovannino. Like his parents looked at him and couldn't imagine him ever being an adult. So that's what I gave um, Signor Speranza. And his whole character kind of came from that name that he's, he's childishly stubborn. He makes impetuous decisions you know, no one would make these decisions, you know, unless they had that kind of character. So I had to make him kind of childish and impetuous in order for his decisions to work. And his, uh, I mean, we could call him a nemesis in the book is the the butcher with the shop across the street who has, what is it, 12 sons? 15 sons. 15 sons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That came from, uh, I had written another story with Senor Speranza um, the year before, um, that didn't end up panning out and it was, it's not similar at all. But, um, in that book, he discovers that he had a different last name and he discovers that because of a clerical error sometime in history, he's the last, he's the last man in the world with his last name, except for his elderly uncle. And he only has a daughter and she has a daughter. So he feels like his, his line is going extinct. So his natural nemesis is the butcher who has 15 sons who look exactly like him. So it's like they could repopulate the earth. There's so many of them. So that's kind of where that came from. (laughs) I love that. I know that you come from a big Italian-American family. Did any of your family members, their quirks, some of their history, I think maybe a recipe or two maybe made their way into this book of yours? Yes. My nonna's recipe for Bonabach, she speaks Calabrese, which is like a dialect, an Italian dialect. So they say Bonabach, but it's uh bazzo, which would be crazy bread. Um, and so that that's, it's in my acknowledgement section. I, I, I put that in there so you can make Bonabach if you want. Um, but of course it's an Italian grandmother recipe, so there's no measurements and it's like, you just have to look at it and see if it's right. So, you know, I don't know how it would turn out if people tried to make it. <laughs> um, but yes, I I incorporated a lot of last names from from my family, um, and I also um, my t- two of my favorite characters are the little old ladies who are always wandering around the town. They're Senora Barbaro and Senora Padula. Um, they came from my grandfather's mother um, died two weeks after he was born. She was like twenty two years old, and she died. And her sister um, Mariana she helped take care of the kids. And then years later, she ended up marrying his, his father. So it was two sisters married to the same man. Um, and so in the book, I've let both of them survive to old age and they're always together. And I love that they always mistake the priest for Jesus. Yes. I love that. You have a couple (laughs) of running gags in this book. That's one of them. The second is a fart sound machine, which uh, really gets its comeuppance. (laughs) So I love that. I also loved learning that there is pretty much a patron saint for everything from cannonball death victims to parking spaces. And I'm going to guess, is there a real patron saint of second chances? I I think that there is. Yes. Um, That title came from my editor in the UK um, because this book actually um, it's it. I had a title when I found my agent, Senor Speranza goes extinct. And then they didn't think that was quite right. So when we submitted it um, to editors, it was changed to the man who pulled his village from the sea, which came from the part when he's worried that there might be an earthquake, but you know, he doesn't care if there's an earthquake, even if it dashes his village into the sea, he'll just haul it back out. That's kind of part of his personality. But then when it was, we're heading towards publication, we thought that that sounded too literary. 
And this book is, is very funny. So we didn't want people to think they were getting one type of book and then they got another. Um, so we went back and forth for so long and the title kept growing and we kept adding words to it. So at a certain point, it was the patron saint of motion pictures and vacuum cleaner repair. And it was like, <laughs> there's not even going to be room on the cover to write all these words. Um, so finally we had, we had talked about the idea of second chances that he wants a second chance, um, you know, patching up his relationship with his daughter. He wants a second chance for his village. Um, you know, all his regrets. He wants, he wants a second chance at doing things right. So eventually that patron saint angle, which we liked since it, you know, it, it comes up so often during the book and then the second chances and we kind of put them together. Um, so my editor came up with that one. It's great. And also, I mean, it works so well. I mean, Italians love their saints. I mean, I grew up in an Italian household and there was a saint for everything, you know? Yeah. I, I discussed that um, at one of the launch events, there was um, Dr. Gina Miele is a professor of Italian cultural studies at Montclair State. And she was um, the moderator. And it was great because her family too, like she, she was, when she came, she was like, oh my gosh, I have all my patron saint medals for my children's names, you know, she's wearing them on a necklace. And definitely that whole idea that Senor Speranza takes to a really extreme that he feels like he has this book of patron saints and he uses it like it's a phone book. Like, okay, I, ha I have an issue with my plumbing. I'm going to look in here. I'm going to find St. Vincent Fair. Okay. And it's like, you know, that they have a direct pipeline to God and like, they're just running errands for him. Like, okay, you talk to this one and, and we can work this all out. It's very funny. So at any point during your writing process, did you pay, uh, pray to the patron saint of writers? I absolutely did. Yes. <laughs> and for people who don't know that one off the top of their head, do you remember? Um, saint, well, there's a, there's a few and, and some of them specialize, but St. John Bosco will help people who are trying to write. Excellent. And, yeah. and you know what, your prayers must've paid off because this book, your debut is getting stellar reviews. How does that feel? It feels very weird. And my, my husband is a writer too. He writes comic books and we'll just talk about like, this is so strange. Like I was sitting in my bedroom, like I write sitting in bed and I write in a notebook and it's like, it's almost like it's imaginary. Like, you know, okay, this is what I did in my work today. I wrote this down. And then it's so weird to think that someone that you've never met is going, to, even one person that you've never met is going to read it. So it's very weird when lots of people are reading it and enjoying it. It's it's very strange feeling. Are we going to get to revisit this town and its cast of characters again in a, in a future book of yours? I don't know. I do love them very much. So it would be, I, I would love to visit with them again. And I, I guess that being said, if you're still thinking about that, I'm sure you've got ideas for, for another book bouncing around in your head, as all writers usually do. Yes. Um, when it sold in the UK, it um, was a two book deal. It sold in the UK first because my agent is actually from the UK. Um, so I'm uh, actually, yes, I do have to produce a second book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any choice. I, it, it'll be something else in a small town. I love small towns. I love small town antics. I love when everybody know it knows everybody else's business. That's kind of that's I, I, that's my favorite kind of story. And I have to say, this story was so much fun to read. I hope people go out and pick it up. The patron saint of second chances, Christine Simon. Thank you for your time today. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we dive into the salacious and scandalous summer read from author Mae Cobb. Her story about three frenemies and the stranger who becomes between them will leave you guessing until the very last page, I promise. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. <laughs>